Well, good morning, everybody. So, school holidays for many parents. Sorry. Uh, children, I'm sure you'll enjoy it, though. Um, we've been speaking this term around faith in tough times, and uh, I'm going to share a message that's along the same lines uh, this morning. But I wonder, as you do your faith journey and you walk this race that's marked out for you in terms of faith, the book of Hebrews speaks about that, what motivates you when the going gets tough? What motivates you when it gets down? Perhaps what even motivates you to take it up a level or spurs you on to do more? What motivates you when you get tired? Now, I think it can be many different things. Perhaps uh, there's a reward. You know, like if you tell yourself, you know, if I can just get this done, I can have a piece of chocolate. How many of you use chocolate to motivate yourselves? Okay, that doesn't work for me. My one is rest. If, if, I can, if I say to myself, if I can get this done, I can rest, then it, it helps me get it done. You can ask Tia, I'm very good at resting. It's a fantastic reward for me. I can do it all day. I'm so good at it. When I often say to my students when they're busy studying and they're in the middle of their degrees and they're battling with some motivation, I often tell them to just picture themselves at the end, what it will look like when they walk across the stage or they receive that degree certificate. And uh, for some of them, that actually works. So sometimes thinking of the end helps us motivate ourselves in the present. When we started our series on faith today, we said, uh, faith in tough times, we said that one of the ways we can describe or define faith is that it's believing that God will do what he said he would do. And that applies to us as individuals. Each of us perhaps have promises where God has said that he would do something for us. At a minimum, you have a promise of salvation in your life if you are a believer, that one day God will save you, perhaps you die first, but he will rescue you from your sins and give you life eternal. We also get these promises where God will do what he said he would do for us as a body and perhaps for families and for uh, groups of people as well, this can apply. But as we talk a little bit about what keeps us going on this faith journey today, one of the central ideas for me that I'd like to unpack a little bit today is this idea that our future reality can help us determine our present conduct. Our future reality, that there is a life after this life, that there is a life eternal, can help us with our present conduct. And so my title of my sermon today is Faith and Eternity. Faith and Eternity. Now what I don't mean by this is the faith that says that it's of no good for this earth. There's sometimes this idea that faith is escapist. It helps us only think of the next life. And we exercise our faith to ensure that we go to heaven one day and not the other place when we die. The faith I'm talking about is a faith that deals with reality. The Bible actually says surprisingly little about heaven. It doesn't say nothing, but it says little if you think about that we're going to live there forever, and this is our future reward, and that we will be with God forever in heaven. Some uh, people talk about it as a future state. The, the Bible talks quite a little bit, relatively little, about our future state, because the Bible's much more concerned about a faith that is not escapist, a faith that deals with reality from an eternal perspective. So when we look at this life, we're talking about looking at through the eyes of faith, where we take what's eternal, the greater reality that one day we will live with God and be with Him forever, and allow that to determine how we live in the present. 
If you have a Bible or a device here, and if you could please open it to Hebrews chapter 12. It's this eternal perspective that can help motivate us when the going gets tough. It's this eternal perspective, our future reality can help us with our present conduct. In Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to, this is the main text for today, so you can keep your Bibles open there. We're going to go back to it quite often. We're going to read the first three verses together. Hebrews chapter 12, from verse 1 to 3. The author of the Hebrews writes, and he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And so as we look at this piece in the book of Hebrews today, it's helpful to remember that one of the main themes in the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better than or Jesus is greater than. Hebrews starts and it tells us that Jesus is greater than the angels. It tells us that he's greater than Moses. He's a greater high priest than Aaron. He's also a greater leader than Joshua. And so as we look at this passage in Hebrews 12, it follows on directly from the previous chapter, chapter 11. And actually, in this part of the Bible, the chapter division actually doesn't help us that much with the flow of thought. And so as we look in Hebrews 11, and we start in this verse 1, my first point today is we must remember that we have a great cloud of witnesses. We have a great cloud of witnesses. Hebrews 11, if you read it, and, and uh, we really just don't have time to do it today, otherwise I would have loved to read you through it, but Hebrews 11 is kind of the hall of fame, of faith. Uh, the writer goes back and he looks at all the Old Testament saints and he highlights their journeys of faith and how they succeeded as faith. And in Hebrews 11, uh, it talks about guys like Abel and Enoch. It talks about Noah. Noah's faith journey is quite interesting. God told him to build an ark so that him and his family would be saved and God's plan would be preserved. The interesting thing about this is when we read, go build an ark, we all, from our children's Bibles, at least have a picture of an ark. We know that an ark was a wooden boat that saved them in, from the flood. But when God told Noah to build an ark, do you understand that no one had ever built one before? Noah's faith journey was to build something he'd never seen before, to do something that hadn't ever been done before, and that's what saved humanity. That's what saved his family. And some of us might be challenged or have been challenged to go on faith journeys where God will ask us to do something that's not been done before so that perhaps others may benefit and be saved through what we do. Sometimes faith journeys means we do something that's never been done before. Hebrews 11 also speaks about Abraham, where God told him to leave his home and everything that was familiar and go to a land that he would show him that one day his descendants would inherit. It's interesting that Abraham himself never inherited the land. The Bible, Hebrews 11 says he actually lived in a tent his whole life. The only land he owned is where he buried his family. So he lived as a, basically as a nomad, as a pilgrim in the land that God had promised to him and his descendants. It's interesting in verse 9 in chapter 11, it also says that the, God, the promise God gave to Abraham was also for Isaac and Jacob. Some faith journeys are multi-generational. Abraham was a hero of faith, not just because he left his land and he believed God, but because he carried his faith journey on 
into his family. And I think some families in this room have promises that are multi-generational. Sometimes we so think of faith as just for us. And the things that God said he would do in our lives is just for us. But we must remember that God's got our children and their children in mind when he speaks to us as well. Hebrews 11 also speaks about Moses as a hero of faith, where he was able to reject status and position. He could have grown up in one of the most advanced societies of the day, in a privileged position, as the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. But because God had spoken to him about leading his people, he rejected status and position to do what God had called him to do. And Hebrews 11 goes on and it lists and it says that there's innumerable people through this dispensation who saw the promise of God and adjusted their lives to that. Verse 13 and 14 and also verse 39 say something interesting about all these heroes of faith. It says that they didn't inherit everything that God promised to them when they died. It says they didn't fully receive it. They saw some of the things that God promised them from a distance and they welcomed it. And then it says this amazing verse, it says, because they did that, because they responded to the promises of God, because they believed that God would do what he said, God was not ashamed to be called their God. Wouldn't that be wonderful in our lives if we could walk our journeys of faith, knowing in our hearts that God is not ashamed to be called our God. It also says at the end of chapter 11 that God had planned something better for them. These heroes of faith who lived their whole lives around the promises of God, they are our great cloud of witnesses. Now, often when we use this picture and when we teach on it, we ask people to imagine a room like this room filled with thousands of people, or like the earlier picture on the screen. This room filled with thousands of people, and we're running the race, and they're cheering us on as spectators watching us. So I don't know if you've ever imagined that when you're battling and you're wrestling to live out your Christian faith, or when you're doing well and you know, you're reading your Bible and you're praying, Moses is watching. That's not, I don't know, for me, that's not completely motivating. It probably makes me feel a little more ashamed. You know, I'm not like Abraham. I didn't leave my home and go to a foreign country. I've been relatively comfortable like that. But there is this sense where we can look at these Old Testament heroes of faith and know that they are in heaven watching us, and that can give us encouragement. But I think the author in Hebrews has a little bit of a different focus in mind, is they are our cloud of witnesses in the sense that their lives testify to us of what is possible when you live a life of faith. Their lives become testimonies for us of how to live and orientate your life around the promises of God. They testify to the possibilities of living a life of faith, of living a life with God and doing a journey of faith with God that can take you to places you never believed. You see things and see God doing things that you never could have imagined. I don't often use quotes when I preach, but I found one that just sums up this the intent and the summary of Hebrews 11 so well. If you guys can put that up, it's by, it's a, by a commentator. His name's F.F. Bruce. But he writes on Hebrews 11 and he says this. He says, in Old Testament times, there were many men and women who had nothing but the promise of God to rest upon. Without any visible evidence that these promises would ever be fulfilled, yet so much did these promises mean to them. I'll read that again. Yet so much did these promises mean to them that they regulated the whole course of their lives in their light. 
They regulated the whole course of their lives in their light. How are we doing with the promises that God has spoken to us? Are we orientating our lives around the promises that God has spoken? Are we letting that regulate our daily conduct? Is the reality of the promises that God has made for us governing our conduct now? What F.F. Bruce also says is that a lot of these Old Testament saints, they lived before Jesus came. Many of them understood that the Messiah would come, that God would send the one he promised in Genesis 3 that would come and crush the serpent's head. They lived believing this, and they believed, lived knowing that the promises that God gave them would take them in that direction and bring that promise of the coming Messiah, that God himself would come back. They lived with that reality, knowing that their journey played a part in that greater promise. And they lived their lives, conditioned their lives, orientated their lives around that. Now for us as New Testament believers, we kind of in a sense have a little bit easier then because Jesus has already come. Our faith is not just a promise of one day something will happen, it is that, but our faith has a little bit more substance because Jesus has already come. And when we read about his life and learn about his life in the scriptures, and when we taught about it in churches and Sunday schools, it adds substance to our faith. Because the faith of Jesus was greater than, or better than, the faith of the Old Testament saints. He lived out this life of fulfilling everything that God had promised to do in him and through him. And so as believers today, we also still do look forward to the return of Christ. And that he will come again and take us to heaven with him, into the future life with him but we have something more to base our faith on. And this is why it's important to remember we have a great cloud of witnesses. It's important to read about the lives of people in the Bible and see how they did their journeys of faith because that can motivate us. It can help us to keep on keeping on. It's important that we hear testimonies of one another in our own faith communities, friends and family and people in our life groups and in our church communities to hear their stories of how God has helped them on their journey. And so we see from Hebrews 11, we must remember that we do have a great cloud of witnesses, people whose lives testify to us. Let's go back to the text. I'd like to read it again and, and pick out, highlight a few more points. So Hebrews chapter 12, again, from verse one to three, it says, therefore, we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. The text goes on and it says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. This is the second thing I'd like to highlight from the text. We have a race that is marked out for us. You have a faith journey, a faith race that is marked out for you. We as a community of believers here at Hatfield have a faith race that's marked out for us. Now, the points won't come up on the screen because they're in the text. But in this race, we must remember three things. One, we need to throw off, cast aside anything that hinders us. Now this could speak, this doesn't speak necessarily of bad things. This could be things that are perfectly normal and fine and acceptable. But when you run a race, normal people don't put backpacks on. When you run a race, you wear clothes that are suited for the race. You find the lightest, strongest jogging shoes you can find. You Orientate your life. You dress appropriately for the race. And our journey of faith is the same. We must throw aside things that can hinder us. They might be good things, like maybe 
buying that second home or going on that extra holiday, maybe that doesn't help you with your faith race. Maybe it's time to cast that aside so that you can pursue the promises of God, so that you can orientate your life around the promises of God. Maybe it means, like Moses, saying no to that promotion and the status at work so that you can pursue your faith journey. We need to cast aside or throw off that which, is hind- which hinders us. We need to do the same. We need to cast aside or throw off sin that so eagerly entangles us, it tells us in verse 1. Sin will hinder us on our faith journey. Can I give you a deep secret about sin? Do you want to know? Stop it. (laughs) Now, sometimes that's easier said than done because we have journeys, particularly if things have become habits in our lives. But if we live with the future in mind, it helps us overcome the sin that entangles us in the present. One day we will be with him, and he will judge us, and we will give account to him for what we've done with our lives. We need to cast aside the sin that hinders us on our faith race, our faith journey. The third thing the verse tells us about this race that is marked out for us, it says we must run this race with perseverance. We must run this race with perseverance. The word perseverance in the Greek also carries the idea of patience. Our faith journeys require patience. Some of the Old Testament saints like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob Their faith journey required a multi-generational patience. The things God promised to them would only happen, they knew, in their children's and children's lives. Our faith journeys require patience. And in a world that is more orientated to the instant, we need to realize faith isn't always instant. Some of the challenges around what people call the prosperity gospel is it's so orientated on faith for the present and receiving in my life that it loses the perspective of living a life and doing things that God's called you to do, which will benefit others in years to come. So there is a race of faith that's marked out for for us. Each of us has a journey of faith that's marked out for us. And Jesus will help you begin that journey and end that journey. What's nice is your race of faith is for you, which means it's a race that you can accomplish. It's a race that you can win at. You should not be trying to run other people's races of faith. Because some people are faith monsters. They're faith giants. You know, they pray once and it works. And then you go, well, I'm not like them. But that might not be your faith journey. Patience and perseverance on your faith journey. So we have a cloud of witnesses. There's a race marked for us. If we go back to the text in Hebrews 12, there's two more things we want to look at this morning. Hebrews 12 again says, therefore, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, the sin that so eagerly entangles, and let us run with perseverance or patience the race marked for us. Excuse me. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We need, thirdly, to fix our eyes on Jesus. As we do these faith journeys, we need to have our eyes focused solely and fixed on Jesus. Jesus went through unimaginable pain, unimaginable torment, being for the first time in his life feeling distanced or separated from God. In verse 2 it says, for the joy set before him. Why did Jesus 
go through the cross. Yes, to deal with our sin and to pay for our sin. But he could look beyond the cross for the joy set before him. What joy is that? That's the joy that sins will be forgiven. Jesus knew by dying on the cross that sins would be forgiven. It's the joy that death would be conquered. Finally, Jesus would come and he would overcome death and the grave. It's the joy that relationships with God the Father could be restored and that people could come into right relationship with God through believing on Jesus and trusting him for their salvation. Relationships could be restored. Now there's a principle here. Jesus went through something in his immediate future. His present conduct was governed by something that was coming later. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, took on the shame that that had. And so the principle that I think is valuable to take out of there, I want to phrase this way. Our future reality must determine our present conduct. Jesus saw a future reality that he described as joy, which helped him endure everything that he went through on the cross. Jesus' future reality that sins would be forgiven, relationships be restored, people would have free, freely access, free access to God, that joy helped him endure what he was going through. And he allowed his present conduct, death on the cross, he endured that because of the joy set before him. And this is a principle of life for us, also modeled by Jesus. We see the same attitude and principle in the early church. When we read the writings of Paul, they so believed that Jesus was coming back in their lifetimes that they completely orientated their lives around that. Paul actually advised people not to get married because he felt Jesus was coming back so soon. So, you know, don't waste your time with that. If you can, he said. Okay. And all the single people here, Jesus, just please, not yet. And some married people go, now, Jesus. <laughs> no one in this room, obviously. Okay. But the mark of the early church for the first two, three hundred years is that this return of Jesus, so this reality, this future reality that Jesus would come back, so inspired them that they completely orientated their lives around the promise of God and what he would do in them. And they followed him literally to the ends of the earth. And we read the stories about the martyrs and how they were faithful in their testimony and in their lives, even to the point of death. So their future reality determined their present conduct. And I often wonder about myself and about us as modern Christians, how the future reality that we will one day be with him and live with him and be in his presence all the time, how that governs my present behavior and my present conduct. There is one picture in the book of Revelation in chapter 7 that gives us a picture of our future reality, of what it will be like in heaven. And I'd like to read that passage just to give us a, an inkling, a picture of what it me, will be like for us in our future, what our future reality will be like. Not maybe, will be like. Revelation chapter 7, verse 15 to 17. I'd like to read that for you. The Apostle John writes and he says, Therefore... He sees a picture of the saints coming into heaven, Christians coming into heaven. And he says, Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. One day we will be in the presence of God all the time. We won't just have snapshots of it like we have perhaps during worship and on other occasions during prayer times in our lives. We will be in the presence of God 
all the time. Day and night, we will be with him. It's going to be amazing. Verse 16 says, Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. They won't experience hardships that they've experienced in this life. For the lamb at the center of their throne will be their shepherd. Jesus himself will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water. Jesus will take them to places of life-giving refreshment. And God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's a fantastic picture to remember when you're in a tough time. When the things that God has promised you are taking time to come through. When it's difficult and it's hard. One day, God himself will wipe away every tear from your eye. Amen. So what if we let this picture of the future, that one day I will be with God and Jesus will be my shepherd and he will restore my soul, because it quotes from Psalm 23 there, and he himself will wipe away every tear from our. What if we let that govern our present conduct? And so we've read now in verse 2 that we must fix our eyes on Jesus. We must hold his example before us. He lived a life of faith. He saw what God was going to do and orientated his life around it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And so we need to keep our eyes on the prize. For us, it's eternal life with him and rewards as well. Let's go back to the text one more time in Hebrews chapter 12. And we want to look at a last point there. The text says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He received his reward. Verse 3 says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the last point I'd like to highlight this morning. We should not grow weary. We must not grow weary and lose heart. We must consider Jesus. Jesus also endured opposition. It wasn't all just plain sailing for him because he was Jesus. Hebrews says he endured opposition from sinners. How many of you on your faith journey have endured opposition. Anybody? Okay, about half of us. The rest is coming. Sorry. (laughs) Endured opposition. On our faith journeys, we have a great cloud of witnesses. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We allow our future reality to govern our present conduct. But opposition will come. And we must not grow weary and lose heart in that moment. If we're going to believe that God will do what he said he will do in our lives, there will be opposition. So what do you do if you grow weary? What do you do when the motivation to continue this faith journey starts waning? When you know that you need to step it up a gear, perhaps to accomplish that which God has for you, but you're hindered and you're tired and you're weary and you're losing heart. I have two thoughts for you. Number one, you need a community of faith around you. You need, like in that picture, someone to come alongside you and help you carry, 
help carry you through the time. That's why Christianity is an us thing and not a me thing only. We need brothers and sisters around us that we can go and say, can you pray with me? Can you stand with me? Can you look after the kids so that I can just keep on keeping on? So when you're weary, be part of a community. That's why it's so vital and helpful to be part of a life group if it's at all possible for you. But the other thing that helps us has been largely what the focus of my message has been this morning is that we have perspective, that when it's tough and when it's weary, that this life is not all there is. See, faith in God doesn't guarantee comfort in this world, but it does carry with it a great reward in the only world that ultimately matters. Faith doesn't mean this life will be easy. Sometimes it will, but sometimes it won't. But what faith does mean is that your reward is in the future, where it really matters. Because in this world, it all comes to pass. But in the future, it stays forever and ever and ever and ever. So we must not grow weary and lose heart. That's why faith and eternity are important. Eternity helps us with an appropriate perspective to help us govern our present hardships and to navigate our way through the realities of this life. I wonder if the worship team can join me at this time. What does this mean for us as a community of believers? It means that the promises that God has given us will come to pass. It means that God is not finished with us yet and that God will do everything he said he would do in our lives. And we can testify. We can testify to one another. We can become each other's great cloud of witnesses. We can become each other's uh, cheerleaders, that's the word I'm looking for, and cheer one another on in the faith. But what happens, and maybe this is for some people in this morning, if I talk about the future reality and going to heaven one day, and that doesn't produce joy in your heart, it produces fear, it produces uncertainty. If I say the phrase, going into eternity without fear, you go, no, no, eternity, it's a little scary. Now, there's a normal scariness that's involved with eternity, because to get there, you have to die. And we don't practice that. It's a new experience for most of us, all of us, actually. And you only get to do it once. How good news is that? But death is simply a stepping stone in a biblical perspective to life evermore. Death is a, it's like sleeping, the Bible says. It uses the metaphor of like falling asleep. But perhaps for some in the room this morning, you don't know that when you reach that place, when you think of eternity, you're not sure. Perhaps you've even responded to altar calls and you're living your life as a Christian because you believe in Jesus, but you're not sure. Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is having confidence in things we don't see, assurance and you don't have that assurance. I wonder if there's anyone in the room this morning that needs that assurance. When you think about eternity, when you think about dying, going to heaven, you're not sure that you're there. Perhaps you've never committed your life to Christ. You've never believed that Jesus would do what he said he would do for you. What did Jesus say he would do? He said he would forgive your sins and he would grant you life eternal if you believe in him. 
if you confess your sins, which means that you agree with what God says about your sins as being true. And if you repent, in other words, you change your mind that you're not going to live for yourself anymore. You're going to orientate your life around the promises that God has given. Perhaps there's some in the room who've never done that. They've never made a decision to give their lives to Jesus in this way, to exercise their faith. But I think there's also many in the room that you're not sure about eternity. You can't go into eternity without fear. And what we'd like to do this morning is to pray for you specifically for that. I'm going to pray a prayer now and the pastors will come stand in front. But if you're not sure, or if you want to give your life to Jesus for the first time, you want to exercise faith that you can approach eternity without fear, that you can go into eternity without fear, that that future reality is not uncertainty, you can have certainty, as many of us in the room do have. If that's you, I'd like to invite you to pray with me now. I'm going to pray a general prayer and then invite you to come to the front so that the pastors can pray with you and help you come to that place of certainty. Can we pray? If this prayer is for you, won't you just pray it in the quietness of your own heart? Lord Jesus, as I sit here today, I don't know if I can go into eternity without fear. I don't know that I will be with you in your presence. I don't know that you will be there to wipe every tear from my eyes. And so what I would to do this morning, Lord, is to give you my life, to ask that you would forgive me for sins that I have committed, things that I have done for myself and not for you. Forgive me for the damage that I've done to others. And I turn to you, Lord, and I ask that you'll teach me what my faith journey is. You'll teach me how to walk towards you and not away from you. I pray, Lord, that you come now by your Holy Spirit and you bring certainty and assurance into people's hearts. That you would forgive sins in this room this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Now, if you prayed that prayer, I want to invite you just to, wherever you are, for whichever reason you prayed it, whether it was first time or if you're just not sure, why don't you come to the front, bring your belongings, your valuables and things with you, and some of our pastors will be here to meet with you, and they're just going to spend a short time praying with you to show you. So if anyone at all would like to come this time, I'd like to invite you to come to the front. If you're in the gallery, we'll wait for you. You can just take your time and come to the front. While people are coming, I have another prayer that I'd like to pray. If you have been growing weary, and if you have been losing heart on your faith journey, perhaps you've lost perspective, perhaps it's just too much. As a community of believers, we'd like to pray for you as well today. And if there's anyone at all that finds themselves in that space, can I invite you to stand where you are uh, right now? And then we're going to pray together as a community. I have this picture, there's a story in the Old Testament where they were fighting a battle, and God told Moses that if he held up his hands, his, the Israelite armies would win. 
But his hands got tired, and so he started lowering his hands, and every time he did, the army started losing the battle. And then Aaron and someone else whose name I forget came to him, and they held up his arms. And I wonder if we can do that this morning as a community of believers for those who are growing tired and weary, that in, in the spirit and in faith, we can hold up each other's arms. And if you need your arms held up this morning, won't you stand right where you are? And I'm going to ask the believers that are gathered around you, thank you to the pastors. If you want to go and pray for people, you can. It seems the rest is not necessary. If you can stand, if you're weary and you're losing heart, you're battling can I ask those around these people just to gather around them? And if you're comfortable and all possible, even if you raise your hands just like this half-mast, won't you allow those just to hold your arms up? If you want to hold them up all the way and let others hold them up, that's also completely fine. Has everyone got somebody standing with them? It looks like it. Why don't you pray, if you can, uh, in the spirit for those whose arms you are supporting. If you're not directly with someone, why don't you pray as well as you can. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are standing. Lord, they've stood because they've grown weary and they're losing heart. And so, Lord, just as happened with Moses, as a family of believers, as a community, we stand up and we hold up their arms so that the fight they're fighting can be won. We think of the ministry that came from the earlier in the service, Lord. We resist the devil in their lives in Jesus' name. We resist the plans of the enemy that would hold them down, that would make them weary, the lies of the enemy that would speak into their minds that cause them to lose heart. We still that voice and those voices in Jesus' name. And Lord, as we stand as a community and we support our brothers and sisters, won't you come now with a gentle wind of your spirit and revive them? Think of that scripture, Lord, in Revelation 7. that says that you will lead them to springs of living water. And we know, Lord, that that's part of the future state. But I pray that that becomes a present reality in this room this morning, even for those perhaps who aren't standing won't you come and revive us, Lord? Give us strength that we need in this journey. And so, Lord, in the spirit, we hold up our brothers' and sisters' hands. Give them strength for their faith journey. Give them strength for the race that is marked out for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for those who've prayed.